Welcome to the Pedro Pascal <laughs> Spectacular. There's the word I was looking for. I had a word and it went away and now it's back. Welcome to the Pedro Pascal Spectacular featuring <laughs> Fanboy and Know-It-All. Yes, it is definitely Pedro Pascal, all wall-to-wall Pedro Pascal. If only we were talking about, you know, we were heroes or whatever. No, never mind. Is that that new Netflix dumb one? Yeah, exactly. He's in it too. He's in that? He is in that too. He plays a superhero. Well, I guess one for three isn't bad for Pedro Pascal. What is up, my nerds? Welcome inside Pop Culture with Fanboy and Know-It-All. I'm Jake. I am Paul. Welcome back inside our crazy brains. Although this was not originally inspired as a Pedro Pascal spectacular, we had decided it was high time that we did a wrap-up or a season two review of Disney Plus's The Mandalorian and also dive into Wonder Woman 1984, which is in a theater or a HBO Max subscription near you. Exactly. Uh, when I decided that, I actually didn't know that Pedro Pascal was in Wonder Woman 1984 because I had not been on the IMDb page yet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he was. he is definitely a big part of it. He plays a much different character in Wonder Woman 1984 than he does in The Mandalorian. A wee bit different. A wee bit different. And by a wee bit, I mean completely different in every single way. I think he should just get an Oscar for the whiplash that his these different roles provided, you know? Right. I can just imagine the casting call for Wonder Woman 1984 where they're like, look, we need somebody who can be big and bold and gregarious, a TV personality through and through. <laughs> and then one producer was like, I got it. The guy who's quiet, monotone, and never shows his face on The Mandalorian. <laughs> Seems perfect. Perfect. I bet he'll nail it. <laughs> He's really good at doing nothing. <laughs> yeah, I tell you what. He was everywhere, though, in the very waning days of 2020. You got to hand it to him there. Obviously, there was supposed to be some spacing in here. Wonder Woman 1984 was supposed to come out earlier in 2020 than it ended up coming out. So it wasn't like it was all supposed to be dropping at exactly the same time. We were supposed to be getting doses of Pascal. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know what else he's been in? Hmm. He has been in, hold on. The the movie that I had missed in the very introduction was We Can Be Heroes. He was in that. We Can Be Heroes. Very good. Very impressive. Thank you. That one's for free, everybody. He was also the very best part of Kingsman, the Golden Circle. He was in that too? Yes. I didn't see that one. Yeah, well, it's it's a pretty hard arse. But yes, he was in it and he was pretty good in it. It was worth just watching him for that. So he has some range. He's just exploded into visibility. It's so funny the way that tends to happen. I'm sure he's been working for a while. Yeah. But it's all of a sudden, he's everywhere. Yeah, for all we know, he could be working since 1984. It's like Chris Pratt, right? You know, he was in Parks and Rec, but then all of a sudden, he was in Jurassic World. He was in Guardians of the Galaxy. He was in sci-fi movies with uh, Jennifer, what's her name? (laughs) 
<laughs> exactly. Jennifer Lawrence. Lawrence, there we go. Uh, he was in action movies. You go look at his IMDb and he was doing bit parts for a while. Yeah, yeah. And all of a sudden he became this this great action hero. This is what happens when you lose a little bit of weight. If I lost a little bit of weight, who knows? Maybe I could be an action hero too. And that is the funny thing about Pedro is he doesn't really when, – whenever you first see his face in The Mandalorian, I won't lie. I was – oh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> huh. Like a soft, pudgy, middle-aged man. I was expecting like, you know, Josh Dumel, a younger cloned version of Josh Dumel or something like that. Well, and yet here was this soft, pudgy guy. And here you you kind of think – so. I sort of think back to the first season when we never saw his face at all. From my recollection, I don't think he ever took off his helmet. The the fi- the robot took it off in the finale of season one. Oh, God. That's where we first saw but it. But why would you pay? I mean, no offense, but why would you pay Pedro Pascal, who probably gets a pretty good check, when you could just, you could throw one of us in the armor, right? We could walk around. We could do stuff. Basically, that role could have been voice acted. It could have been done entirely by a stunt. And and honestly, I wondered that a few times. Yeah. Uh, I wondered, was the role really played mostly by a stunt uh, actor? And then they just, Pedro Pascal basically just did the face scenes and the voice acting? Yeah, yeah. And then... How bitter would you be? Of course, this happens all the time in the Star Wars universe. How bitter would you be to be on screen for all that time and never get any credit for all your good work? I mean, we all know that James Earl Jones did the voice for for Darth Vader, but right. I could not tell you right off the top of my head who played him like bodily. I know it wasn't James Earl Jones in the suit. Right. But that's kind of the thing of being a stunt person in Hollywood especially in these action films, you know, outside of maybe Tommy C that most of these actors and actresses aren't doing most of their own stunts. True. And so you think about all these action heroes and heroines who are really 50% a stunt person. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you think about the Avengers and we're getting way off topic, but you know, when you think about the Avengers, what 60 70 percent of the the avengers that we see on screen are probably cgi you know that you know that that tony stark isn't actually flying robert downey jr is not actually flying that suit he's just got a green screen and he's sitting in a cozy studio somewhere just reading lines and looking scared looking or he doesn't always look scared you know he tries to look confident but he looks sardonic at times sardonic sardonic good word good word. thank you I said it twice just so I would get credit for it. Speaking of CGI, though. Um, <laughs> Getting us back on track. Yeah, we're we're going to start today. We're going to get to Mandalorian Season 2, but we're going to start with uh, Pedro's work in Wonder Woman 1984, and it's highly questionable CGI, but also the fact that the movie might have been better if it was entirely CGI based on... Okay, that's I'm, that's, I'm getting you know into my opinions too much already. Uh, and of course we'll wrap up the show the way we always love to wrap up the show with the most least important thing, but now it's time for all of our hot takes on wonder woman, 1984. So Jake, if wonder woman 
lassoed you with the lasso of truth, what exactly would you tell her you thought of this movie? Mm. I will admit that I had low expectations coming in. Now, why is that? Because I had heard that people were not pleased with the film. Never read the reviews before you see it. I didn't read them, but I just kept hearing the sentiments. Mm. You know, they kept coming at me. People's, people like to share their feelings with me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a blessing and a curse. Yeah, yeah I am sure. All right. So my, my expectations were low and I found them lifting. I found them being buoyed early on in the film because I thought, ah, perhaps this is going to be a little bit cheeky, a little bit uh, goofy, a little bit more lighthearted with this 1980s setting and it's heavily featured uh, aerobics and malls and... <laughs> Weird clothing and parachute pants. I thought, you know, okay, okay, maybe, maybe they're trying something really different here. And then as it started to drag in the middle, I started to kind of worry. I had the uh oh moment. And then as, as it continued to sort of play out the, the villains and what was going on with the plot. And the truth and the wishing, I thought, oh boy, um, I don't know if they're going to be able to land this invisible plane. <laughs> Which was in the movie far too short a time, I think. And then by the end, I thought, yeah, boy, that was a two and a half hour movie that should have been an hour and a half. And even though it overstayed its welcome by an hour, still didn't manage to make me care all that much about his character. You know, Jake. And then she would unlasso me and kick me into space. Yes. And deservedly so, really. Deservedly so. I, I, Some of your criticisms have merit, I will just say. But I honestly found this to be a fairly enjoyable movie. So, just to back up, wanted to just mention what this movie is about. Because... You know, there's probably a lot of people don't have HBO Max. They don't want to go to the movie theaters or all their movie theaters around them are closed or whatnot. So essentially, you've got Wonder Woman in 1984, of course, because Wonder Woman is who she is. She doesn't age. Diana Prince does not age. So she still looks really spectacular. Um, and they come across, she's working at the Smithsonian at this time, uh, meets this woman named Barbara Minerva. They are co-workers at this place. Barbara Minerva is played by uh, Kristen Wiig. And they uncovered this weird little wishing rock, wishing stone, essentially. Would you say that's what it is? Wishing phallic symbol? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. We don't need like a parental. You know I'm not wrong, Every though. Every single episode, Jake. You know I'm not wrong, though. So anyway they have this rock that we learn has some very magical powers you touch it and you wish something and it comes true but it has sort of a boomerang effect they call it the, the monkey's paw effect um, which essentially means that yes your wish no matter how outlandish it is will be granted 
but it will take something from you in return. And so that's pretty much the setup. You've got all these people making wishes um, that turn out to not to be so great. We know from the trailers that that uh, Diana Prince sort of kind of wishes for her old boyfriend back. Barbara Minerva wishes that she was like Diana Prince because she's just so cool. And then you have this slimy oil speculator named Max Lord who wishes for something else entirely. He wishes to be the wishing stone itself. Because it's the 80s and it's a it's you know, it's all about excess. So that's sort of the plot in in a nutshell, right? So you've got this is one of those movies that has two primary bad guys. Max Lord is an evil businessman. And Barbara Minerva turns out to be um, one of Wonder Woman's most eternal enemies called Cheetah. And she has all the strength and all the, all the speed of, of Wonder Woman, but she's just not nearly as nice. And I think that that's actually where sort of the, the most, some of the movie's problems start right there. I think we yeah. have this, this split of interest between Max Lord, who's just kind of sort of a bad guy, Cheetah, who is kind of sort of a bad guy, although she gets worse and worse and worse. And then you've got the wishing stone itself. And right. I think that any superhero is as strong as its villain. And all these villains just sort of muddied the waters a little bit, I think. Well, muddied the waters, not to your point, not just due to how many of them there were. I don't even think that was as much the problem as it was the fact that you said the kind of sort of part yeah, where they really weren't actually villains at all. They were just misguided people. And, ah, shucks, a nice touching speech brings all the misguided people back to roost in the end. (laughs) Oh, you're so cynical, Jake. You're so. It's, it's, I, I am cynical on that point in that the, in that the final resolution hinged on the entire population of the world okay spoilers <laughs> all right this is your spoiler warning i haven't given the spoiler yet skip ahead i'll wait all right the entire population of the world deciding yeah i'll give up my wish cool when like when she spent all this time trying to convince these people that are clearly dealing with significant problems from their wish, or at least Pedro Pascal is, Max Lord is, and they won't give up their wish, they won't give up their wish, and then everybody in the world on a dime in a split second gives up their wish just in time for the nuclear warheads to dissolve. Okay, so here's here's the thing. Now, and <laughs> it's like, okay. I don't disagree with you at all. This, there was some weirdness with the whole conclusion. I don't think the conclusion worked for me one little bit. But just to just to go with the movie for a minute, it's because of the lasso of truth, right? You're not you're not just compelled to tell the truth. You see the truth. And so you see all these people who are watching, you know, because they're all watching it on screen, right? The, right? the end of the world on screen. They are able to see the truth of what their wishes have done to the world and to themselves. And so because they're able to see the truth, they're able to repent. It's actually a very nice spiritual ending, even though... 
it didn't work in the story at all. Right. It's poorly executed. The the and that was ultimately my frustration with it was I I, I really wanted to like where it was going with the whole concept. Oh, and she didn't and give her the wish, by the way. Well, it was implied she did. No, she didn't. She yeah, because she was being transformed back, you know, into herself. No, and... it was just because she was beaten up. She totally did <laughs> not. <laughs> no, I agree. I agree. From a plotting point, just from a, mo- a simple movie making point, it was not clear, right? And you're like, yeah, uh, well, hold on a second. Um, well, and and even if she did, which they seem to, they must, they imply that has to happen in order for the resolution to come full tilt right i don't think so i don't they did that was the whole thing with the when no, they're no, reading no, about no. the mayans they're like they had to give up and they wouldn't and so there you go yeah, they, no, there's no. two components to and it and again this speaks exactly to your point where it was a little muddled but i i don't think logically it necessarily has to work that way because it sort of depends on the wish right like all the civilizations one of the things the wishing stone has done in the past is it's destroyed all these civilizations right well, they've destroyed themselves, essentially. They've destroyed themselves. So you've got, you have all these people who wish for really destructive wishes that made huge deals in the in the socio-political climate. But the cheetah, she just sort of wanted to be like Wonder Woman. And so she still retains her powers. She's got to retain her powers because she's like one of Wonder Woman's enemies for, well, for the last... 30, 70 years. So. Well, but no longer. In, well, maybe this is, maybe this is the DC expanded versus the DC. What's the other one? Multiverse. Yeah, It's a, it's all confusing. No, I, I totally think she has her powers. She still has her powers. I'm telling you. Well, but that was, that was another problem with the film is that here she is wishing that she is the greatest predator who ever lived and the great, more powerful than anyone who's ever existed before. And yet she gets owned by Wonder Woman and can't even withstand electrical shock at the same, to the same degree that Wonder Woman can. Cats. So I'm like, her wish water. didn't even come true in the first place. Cats hate water. They just hate it. <laughs> they hate it. But it wasn't the water that was the problem. It was the electricity. It was the electricity in the water, though. Well, yeah, but if she it should have affected Diana, if it affected Cheetah. No, she was right based on, on the wish. She was based totally, on the wish. She was totally wearing her armor, so it was just fine. She was. She had exposed areas. <laughs> the point is, the point is, the movie continues to try to set up and ta- you know, set up rules for itself, and then completely ignore them. And that lends itself to the poor movie making experience. It was a confused movie. It was a confused movie. And the point that you made, I and I wanted to go back to this because I was really surprised at the CGI. The CGI yeah. felt really hinky. And I was wondering whether part of that was just because um, we were watching it on the small screen for the very first time. Like it, it would have been in the you know, the 4K or 8K or whatever you're watching it on. So the the actual visual effects felt more false than they would have on a traditional movie screen where the pace of the movie is a little bit slower. Um, it, But it did feel weird. It, it felt very strange to me to have really one of 2020's, one of only two blockbusters released during the year feel just a little bit, fake i was surprised yeah 
Yeah, and and I don't think you can blame it on the pandemic either because this movie was supposed to come out earlier in the year. It was would have been well through, you know, the process of developing this by the time everything hit. And so that was something that was another reason I was worried about it was that I thought I noticed that in the trailers with some of the animation around Cheetah and I just thought, "Oh goodness. That doesn't look good. That looks really B or C like B grade." And so I was already worried about Cheetah, but I think to your point, what then surprised me was how much the the CG around Wonder Woman's other action sequences was so cheesy it, to the point where I almost wondered, were they trying to sort of pay a bit of an homage to the Wonder Woman of the 80s where stuff was slower because I had this realization as my wife and I were watching this and we were commenting on it. I was like, it's almost like they're trying to do the reverse of what the Bourne movies did. The Bourne movies did a lot with the camera work and the way they, uh, the way they choreographed and filmed the fight sequences to speed up the action, to be faster than your eye could really even comprehend, to lend to a frenetic and sort of like pulse pounding, breathtaking pace. And in so many of these action sequences, they felt weirdly slowed down. Yeah, and almost like they were they were going for a more vintage, slow combat aesthetic. And I remember what's a uh, Captain America: First Avenger had a bit of this feel early on in it in the film, where you felt like you were kind of watching an older film, based on how they filmed and the effects they use. So I almost wondered, were they going for a stylistic thing here? I don't know. Yeah, you know, when I think back on the original Wonder Woman, which was spectacular, I thought the original Wonder Woman was a great, great, great movie. But you think about the action sequences, and they were all super slow motion. I mean, they really dove into that slow motion type of type of feel where you had to see viscerally kind of kind of the the bullets bouncing off the bracelets and her sliding underneath people and her right. leaping over into so so they leaned into that more i think for this one the problem was not the slow motion but there was something about the barbie doll effect you know where yeah, the rubber man barbie doll yeah because i think that a lot of the 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 motions that felt weird to me were always taken from a distance like when you're seeing wonder woman riding the thunderbolt or whatever running from a distance and during her first little when she was a little kid running toward whatever she's running toward i think that 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 distance for some reason makes it feel a little more action figurey like in hmm. and, and it just doesn't it doesn't lend itself like i have the same feeling actually when i watch lord of the rings over again uh-huh. i mean those were great movies but sometimes when you see legolas swinging up on a troll right. this looks a little rubbery he looks a little bit fake and it's almost yeah. just too smooth and too plasticine for it to be realistic and that that's sort of what i felt like here yeah things snap into place and I I think I was just surprised based on the first one. You didn't have that same sense of it being as disjointed. And this one, it did feel very, very plastic. You know, like she was posed to your point as she was 
lassoing her way through a mall. Right. You know, that, like even that scene, you just felt, boy, what is going on here? I and actually it, really like that scene. I got it. I like the scene, but the CGI just was really, to your point, it was plastic and felt molded rather than authentic. Yeah. And, and again, I go back to how much of a difference does it make when you're watching it for the very first time at home? Because you were saying already, you were saying that you were watching it with your wife and you were talking about the CGI with your wife. I think that sometimes when we're in the theaters, obviously we're not talking to anybody around us because we would get thwacked on the head by the people behind us if we were. But you're also just sort of immersed in the sights and the sounds and the spectacle of it all. You paid $12 to go see this movie. And so because of that, you're sort of more open to the experience. Whereas when you watch it on on HBO Max, I know you probably have a big screen at home, but it can't be as big and as immersive as you have in the theater. And, And because it's just more of a casual experience, it lends itself to more conversation and it and that conversation naturally lends itself to what the movie is doing well or wrong and yeah. i think that once you start picking at those moments well it it's almost like you don't watch horror movies so you can't say this but sometimes when you watch a horror movie and even pretty good horror movies if that that sense of disbelief is broken and people start laughing when they should be scared to death. There's something in the movie that just breaks completely. Even if you watched it at a totally different time and the audience was into it, you would think you would walk away and think this was really effective. This scared me, but there's just sort of something about that, that breaking of the suspension of disbelief. And I think that it's so much easier to break that, that suspension when you're at home. Yeah. I, I don't disagree with that. I remember that uh, that effect being very real with a movie like Avatar with the blue people where you, when you're watching it in 3D on the IMAX with the stuff floating out at you and the speakers booming and rattling your bones, it was a very fun experience. But then when you watch it at home and your body's not being rattled and there's nothing floating down out of the screen onto your head <laughs> – it was very underwhelming. You could point out all the flaws in its story and in its logic and stuff like that. That's where for me, I think there's a little, still a little bit of a difference when it comes to the CGI. Um, totally with you when it comes to story and experience. But when it comes to bad CGI, I don't know. I'm sort of of the mind that bad CGI is just bad CGI. Now, maybe we forgive it more in a good movie. Uh, like Lord of the Rings, like we forgive Legolas looking weird as he swings on a horse or off of a huge elephant because everything else we really like in the experience. But with Wonder Woman, but with Wonder Woman, it just felt like every CGI action sequence was really rough and it just felt like a quality issue to me. Yeah, it is a shame because I think that that in my soul, I think that I liked the movie better than you did for and I think for two reasons, um, I even as I agree with you on on your take as far as the weaknesses of the movie, I think that the CGI was surprisingly rough. Um, it felt like a muddled story. I don't think that the bad guys were particularly compelling. 
But I do have to say that I really loved the some of the messages of the movie, you know, and I think that they felt really timely. I liked I liked the idea of even now, you know, the 80s were very famous for we can have it all, right? Right. That is also something that we hear about all the time now, where we can have it all. We feel like we deserve this. We need this. We should, we are being wronged if we are are kept away from this thing that we want. And I think that the the, the movies push back on that, the idea that, that sometimes we do have to give up what we want for the greater good, that felt like a really responsible message to me. And I, I loved that. One of the things I love about the Wonder Woman movies is that Wonder Woman herself always feels every bit the hero. She really does soar in a way that I think a lot of other a lot of other superheroes even just don't quite do. Um she she really feels like a true hero to me and I appreciate that. And I think that she still came across as that heroine that that you want her to be. The other thing is very specific to me. I was what? 14 years old in 1984. I remember the parachute pants. I remember the aerobics. I loved the atmosphere that was sort of brought to bear here. I thought, honestly, the parachute pants gag was hilarious. I thought, does everyone parachute now? You know, I just loved... All those little moments. And it was a nice reversal, actually, from from the original movie where Diana comes to 1917 or 1918 Europe and is totally confused by everything she sees. Now it's Steve Rogers' turn to get confused. And that that was a nice turnaround. I think that Chris Pine has a nice, humorous way about him that I appreciated here. Yeah. And I agree with you. That was... Where they almost, where I was most bought in was as they were leaning into that 1980s aesthetic. And, and where I thought that the most promise was in terms of fleshing out the premise of mankind reaping its own, reaping, uh, the destruction that it sowed through its selfishness and through our individual inabilities to let go of our own desires and the way that when those snowball, they have an effect you know, society wide, like that is deeply Christian. Uh, even if the movie itself isn't making a point from a Christian worldview, this idea that our individual responsibility to the community is vital and that our individual sins have a snowball effect that destroy the life of ourselves, our families, and those around us and ultimately corrupt the world itself. Uh, and then Diana herself as a as an avatar for us, if you will, struggling with that to say, can I not at least hold on to mine? Can I fix everybody else's problems and hold on to this one nice thing for myself? Yes. Uh, boy, how many times have I had that thought as a parent, as a spouse, as an employee, as a citizen <laughs> of the world, <laughs> um, which – uh, so that it was convicting in that regard, yeah, for me, and and I really like that, um, and and so I think that's in part why I was more disappointed with the way it kind of muddled through the story, in the end, 
was I thought that could they could have done something really really interesting with it. Yeah, and sort of flubbed it. Yeah, yeah, I I, I agree with all of that. I think that I think that that conviction that that wanting one nice thing for myself man haven't we all felt that way sometimes and i the idea that that she would sacrifice that i think i thought that that was actually one of the most poignant moments of the movie and i think that the movie actually did effectively move us through that process you know where we could see that she doesn't want to give that up she's being selfish for a little while but then she understands like the true hero that she is she has to uh, yeah. one of the things that i find interesting and this this might be even just sort of like a cop-out because it almost seems too simple but in the first wonder woman movie i see a lot of i see to get to your to your christian point I can see echoes of the seven deadly sins in both Wonder Woman movies. Like the very first one, when you have the the god Ares doing his thing, you have this sense of pride and rage, those two deadly sins. And of course, the biggest one is pride, where Ares becomes almost this Satan-like creature. Mm. I mean, that, that humanity doesn't understand why Zeus loved humanity so much because they don't deserve it. That sense of pride becomes a very, very poignant Christian message. This one was really focusing on two sins that are very, very big in our own day. The sins of of greed and of envy. And I think that that the fact that it tried to tackle those very important, um, very sinister and seductive sins i think was was one thing where i would like to give the movie more credit for trying to do that even if it didn't yeah. completely succeed yep i'd like to i'm struggling <laughs> the promise was there the prom- so paul ultimately all those things considered where would this fall on a scale of one to ten for you you know these these numbers are so subjective. I, I would give this a six and a half for me. But let me also actually say, in terms of like the DC extended universe, what we've seen since Batman versus Superman or Man of Steel, I would say that this would probably rank. Ooh, I would still I would still almost make it third on the list. I would say Wonder Woman, the first one, Shazam. This Wonder Woman, Wonder Woman 84 and Aquaman feel like they're neck and neck for me. I'm with you there. Even if I don't agree on the numerical score, I I do think it's better than most of the other DC stuff, which <laughs> isn't saying much, uh, but I'd give it a 5.25. It's not, it's slightly above average. You'll, you'll be mildly entertained if you watch it. It's not the worst thing you're going to watch, but at the same time, it's not going to rise to any level of uh, enjoyment or profundity uh, so as to make me watch it again, especially at a two and a half hour long runtime. I think the moral of this movie, you gotta have a really, really good bad guy for these things to hold together. I just think that's an, that is an absolute must. And yeah. as much as, as Kristen Wiig tried, it just didn't quite work. There you go. Wonder Woman 1984. Have you ventured into a theater near you or perhaps dropped 15 bucks on a month subscription to HBO Max to watch this film? We're on Twitter and we'd love to talk with you about it. I'm at Jake underscore Roberson. I'm at AC Paul. But now it's time for our season two review of The Mandalorian.
Paul, it seems just like yesterday that Mandalorian season one was hotly anticipated. And yet here we are one day later and we're doing a recap of season two of the Mandalorian. <laughs> one day later. One day. That's how it feels, though. Well, right? it does kind of feel that way. And, and Mandalorian is still the talk of the town in some ways, too. So, And it's, I find this pretty interesting because we did a recap of the very first episode of The Mandalorian. Right. And it felt like you were all in on this season. You loved that first episode. And I was... I liked It's a bit of hyperbole, but... You were in the right direction. You loved it more than I liked you. it more than you did. <laughs> and I was a little bit more reserved. Just just from what I gather from our conversations both online and offline, it feels like that might have switched a little bit. Possibly. Yeah, I was I was less worried about the season than you are. I was more optimistic about where the the show might go uh, because I was, I did enjoy that first episode more than you did. And I was not as concerned as you were about potential pitfalls that you had, uh, that, that you had lavish fan service. Yeah. Too cute baby Yoda. And ultimately, yeah, I think we did flip flop, even though I don't know. And I'll be curious to hear from you whether, how you feel like it did compared to your specific concerns. But I do think we flip-flopped a bit in that I ended up enjoying season two and let it, let it be said here that there will be spoilers here. We're doing a season two recap, but not being particularly enamored. Like it, it didn't move the story along hardly at all. What? It, it really felt like an entire me? season of tentpole of of just filler episodes. You are completely loony. It it literally seemed like it <laughs> it just drug out a very small little thing. It just it was everything was an excuse to have a standalone episode almost. And while I enjoyed those standalone episodes, I just wasn't really drawn in that much more to the characters. That sounds harsh. I really enjoyed season two. I had a lot of fun. And in fact, some of its standalone episodes I thought might, might've surpassed some of my, the ones I liked in season one. And yet it left me. And maybe this is part of where I'm feeling triggered. Paul, it left me feeling a little bit too much like lost. Oh my God. Where I was left with a whole bunch of promises about where this will go. And I'm interested in where it will go. But yet, I'm like, where did it actually come from? And it didn't come very far, in my opinion. That is such a lie. That is such a lie. And you have said many, many wrong things in just that 30, 45 <laughs> second interlude. First, Hot takes with Jake Roberson. First, let me just say, Lost, including the final episode was great. The final episode was fantastic. And I will go to my grave saying that. It was really, really good. Second, I don't know how you can say that they didn't move the story along at all when one of the main characters is gone. He left. I didn't say at all. I just said not very far. It feels like that was quite far. Because when you think about what we're going to see in season three, it's going to be totally different than what we've seen in, in seasons one and two. I mean, The Mandalorian 
is going to be in a completely different place than he was for, for seasons one and two. He was essentially a surrogate father taking care of this very adorable alien creature, trying to get it back to where it needed to go. Now, all of a sudden, it's Mandalorian all on his own, the gunslinger of old, doing whatever he needs to do with this black saber that he doesn't quite know what to do with and potentially taking over the Mandalorian throne. That's entirely a different story. It is, but that's what I'm saying is they're promising something different. They're saying, oh, we're going to go somewhere different. But in reality, what you had was just a bunch of excuses to shuffle the baby to different planets, to have standalone adventures on those planets, and then ultimately to hand them off to Luke Skywalker. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally and completely disagree with you. Although it did have some really nice standalone episodes, but I don't see, I don't see how the progression of this particular season, in terms of what your primary criticism is, how it's any different than it was in season one. I mean, you, you had those standalone episodes. You still had you had that same sort of slow progression as far as where the kids and where the ship was going to. So it doesn't feel like the tempo in terms of the storyline was any different. Well, and and I think if you go back to the last episode where we talked about this, or perhaps that one plus where we talked about season one, that was even though I was more optimistic in the last episode, that was I think I believe I expressed. One of my potential concerns was that it felt like season one really got cooking in the final two episodes to me of season one it was like, okay, now we're, now we're getting to the, you know, the bigger story, the badder villains, what's all going on. What's, what's behind all of this, you know, that's slowly been simmering up to now things are starting to get heated. And so I anticipated season two in that regard though not to this level, being more like Daredevil season two, mm-hmm. where it would kind of hit the ground running and we would get a we would see a lot more story progression, character progression, things like that. And yet it felt to me like it did the same thing, sort of slow played for the fr- I I slow played itself and then got cooking a little bit in the final two episodes. But I thought we were gonna learn a whole lot more about Moff Gideon and his motivations uh, and the empire's motivations and um, get a whole lot more about the other Mandalorians that we meet in this season. And yet they're completely discarded until the very end after we meet them initially, and then until they're brought back in to help slash create the next plot, you know, <laughs> possibilities. And so I guess I felt like the, all the possibilities that were opened at the end of season one weren't all delivered on and we're just left with all these other plot possibilities again. You know, we didn't get to explore anything else with Ahsoka Tana. We didn't get to explore in her quest to find, uh, what's his name, that general that she, or that uh, commander that she was after in the empire and more about Moff Gideon's plans and more about the Mandalore plans to retake their planet. Like there were all these things that they could have given us some more on. And really they just gave us teasers in my opinion. Well, that is an interesting thought. I uh, I would have to say that I totally agree. One thing I would love to see, a total episode devoted to Moff Gideon. Mm. I think that would be super cool, but not necessarily, you know. The Mandalorian revealed itself 
in in some ways as a really good, exciting, almost throwback show. But it's not Breaking Bad. You know, I right. think that that when you're talking about this is a, this is an action show that has some really pretty good character development, but it's not a character development show that necessarily draws you into this world of big complex ideas. It's it's meant to be fun and exciting and and light in its own sort of heavy way. And and so I think that that might be some of the dissonance that you're feeling. You feel like the the characters have so much more potential to be enriched by the story. And I, I can, I can get that, but I don't think that that's inherently what the show is about. And I think one of the reasons why I might've liked it better than you did this season is first, one of the concerns that I had when we first talked about this was the idea of this slavish fan service, right? It really bore out that slavish fan service. Yeah. And I wound up liking it. <laughs> as as I knew fanboy would. <laughs> you know, it, it felt like it felt oh, I tell you what, when they got together, chapter thirteen, the Jedi, uh Hoshka Tano, is that how you say it? Ahsoka. Ahsoka. Ahsoka, I thought that was one of the coolest episodes ever. Ever just because of of that dynamic between the Mandalorian and Ahsoka and because of of everything that was sort of set up, even though that was sort of a semi-standalone episode in and of itself, right? I mean, it it did have, it did have, it furthered the story, but it was really about how the Mandalorian and the Jedi came together to deal with this particular issue, just old West style. That is something that I found myself really digging. And I think that that was sort of, that was sort of where I sort of went all in on this, this, this season and said, okay, so it's not necessarily Breaking Bad. It's not necessarily Ozark. Man, is it fun. And I really dug it just because of that. And I think, you know, to your point, yes, I wanted it to be more of the character thing. However, I I honestly don't think that I think the show, to your point, ends up reveling in its slavish, slavish fan service, but it keeps making suggestions that it wants to be more. Like I felt like I was being led on in that regard. If it would have just been content to be what you just described, it's sort of like if that's the expectation, I can get myself there. I can stay in that space. But yet in that episode you describe, you know, it makes allusions to Ahsoka Tana's pursuit of Thrawn, who's this deeper Star Wars canon villain that uh, apparently the the Uber fans really love or the fans of um, the Clone Wars animated show, you know, got really excited about. And uh, or the nods to the retaking of Mandalore or with Moff Gideon in the secret, you know, we keep getting threads of this secret empire plan to rebuild and sort of looking at the failure of the new Republic to build a less problematic empire. You know, you start to see the creeping suggestions of oppressiveness and things like that still 
uh, or showing up in the new republic as it's trying to implement its rule and so it, it keeps bringing all this stuff up like hey oh isn't this interesting isn't this intriguing <laughs> and so it's like it keeps telling me like wink wink nudge nudge this stuff is important and getting me excited about it and then not delivering on it well i i get that i get that i think that part of the purpose might be sort of the same reason why you know the second lord of the ring reference in this whole podcast how all the designers for the lord of the ring sets designed these elaborate sets for things that never even showed up on screen never even you know they would be there for a quarter of a second or you would they would never actually make their way onto the screen at all these these incredibly rich and tolkien-esque uh perfect period sets that authenticity lends itself and grows the story like when i would watch lord of the rings there were times when i really wanted to know who made those huge statues statues that were at the the waterfall's edge i wanted to know all these stories i think that those would be some incredible stories to know but they weren't necessarily the stories that that we were going to be told and I think that that you can have that sort of same sensation in the Mandalorian. It, it gives this sense, even though it's sort of dissatisfying, and I totally hear that. It gives this sense of a broader universe that has so many other places that it could go in the future, and that's what makes these worlds so powerful and potent. Is their ability to flex? Now, I would love to know exactly how. And, and this is exactly the period where where you think that it would be. How exactly the old empire gets to become the first order and how in the heck they got all of their money to build all those spaceships that you see in the... the right. You know, and, and I think that those that would be a fascinating story. I don't think it bothers me as much that I don't see that here because essentially the Mandalorian at least for its first two seasons has really been a family story story of a father story of a son father protecting the son and because it's winnowed down to that with these great sci-fi old west influences i can i can wait i can wait for the story to be fleshed out well and you know to to possibly exacerbate or assuage my concerns <laughs> a la lost of course the stinger at the very end of the last episode of season two involves none other than boba fett and the teaser for the new show the book of boba fett and we know from disney announcements that we're getting even more new star wars shows coming via disney plus and so you know, they're clearly trying to whet the appetite and expand the universe and get you to buy in and say, okay, I want to see these other threads start to uh, be pulled at and start to be explored. And so, you know, maybe there's that sense of we don't want to give it all away right here. We're going to do the thing. Maybe they're doing the thing that I've wanted a lot of shows or movies to do to say, don't try to pack everything into a tiny little window. Let yourself have, you know, from a movie, if you're a movie, let yourself be a mini series. If you're a mini series, let yourself be a longer series. If you're a longer series, let yourself have a couple of seasons, you know, yeah. more, 
more. You deserve more. You can have more. I want more. Very Max Lord of you. That's right. So yeah, perhaps, perhaps that's where they're going. I'll just say it leaves me a little bit more wary now than I was before after expecting them to go further. Not that they had to solve everything, right? Yeah. But with the prominence that they gave these things, yeah. these asides, it wasn't like you just saw a statue and you're like, that's interesting. Or you happen to see a character in the background that's like, I'd like to know their story. It's They're, they're giving it story prominence. I wanted them to deliver a little bit more. So that's where it left me underwhelmed, even though, to your point, the action, like in chapter 14, The Tragedy, which was directed, this makes sense, by Robert Rodriguez, really great action in that one. Yes. Yeah. And then I think that, that one of the things that stood out to me in this season was some fantastic action sequences. We had talked about the, the crate dragon at the very beginning of the, of the series or of the season thought that was really cool, but, but you had some fantastic suspenseful moments that, that really worked on, on just sort of that star Wars, traditional fun level i thought that uh chapter 10 the passenger with those cool spider things that attack uh i thought those were really super great um i thought that the the dark troopers were very intimidating i thought those were great really well and and set up you know luke skywalker's appearance incredibly well it showed what a cool dude that guy was that that we didn't even really get to see as much in the movies i mean we see him he's probably at his best with jabba the hut but it's a quick thing and i think that he showed just how fearsome he was um which i appreciated so i think that on that level it works really well i think that that jake because you and i are adults in some ways, I would almost say that the, the series problem is totally different from what you would say, although we might be even talking about the same thing. You would you wanted the, the storyline to speed up. I think I wanted in some ways to make this more of that rich, immersive storytelling experiences. I almost wanted it to slow down where you could feel the characters you know you would you would you would have a greater sense of of the the emotional connection that these characters had to whatever their motivations were and i think yeah. because because they, they really wanted to keep the action going we didn't see as much of that uh that deep character development as i think there could have been but that made it a fun exciting movie that or or series that my that we could really enjoy and just sort of float along with. Although I'll often say that I want things to be sped up. I actually think in this case, I'm not saying that I want it to be sped up. I think I just want it to be more focused. And if that focus is on slowing down and delving into the characters and the richness of the experience as they're on this adventure, I'm all, I'm, I'm all in for that. Yeah. I thought that was what was great about Logan, for example, oh, yeah. as we talked about on this show, that it was willing to slow down and not try to tell this big expansive story, but to instead slow down and experience a tighter, shorter timeline story and sit in it, you know, relatively speaking, for a movie. If that's the direction you're going to go with The Mandalorian, then go there. Well, another example of that is Better Call Saul. 
where it's not trying to race through the series, right? It's not, it's, it's sitting on some, it dwells on like some short periods of time to get you resonating and empathizing with these characters. And so it's sort of like, I guess I felt like it just got caught in between the grand scope and, Ooh, what's all these bigger picture things happening and the smaller stories of the Mandalorian and Grogu. And so for me, it was more, Hey, commit yourself to a lane. Grogu. I'm not, I'm not a fan. Terrible name. Terrible name. Really bad. I, I did not. That was, that's a big miss. Grogu. It doesn't roll off the tongue. It's not, it's not weird enough to be interesting. It's not cute enough to be interesting. It just didn't land. It just didn't land. It just didn't land. It sounds like a, a very minor creature that might try to chew off your foot. And that's not good. That's not good at all. Yeah, maybe it's a a weird one-off Star Trek creature that shows up in one of their standalone episodes. You know what I would pay to see, though, for one of these seasons? Honestly, the Mandalorian and the Jedi spending a whole season together just kicking butt in the galaxy. I I would pay, I would double my Disney Plus money for that. Maybe, maybe they're gonna reunite Din Djarin and Ahsoka Tano in season three. Who knows? Who knows? We'll have to see. That's what I'm hoping for. So overall though, Paul, back to the numerical rating. What do you give season two of the Mandalorian? Oh, what did I give season one? I don't remember. Yeah. So I, in terms of a numerical rating, that's a really difficult thing for me to nail down. I don't think I like this as quite as much as as season one, but I liked it better than I thought I was going to. I thought I was going to be disappointed. I was not disappointed at all. I'm going to assume that I gave Mandalorian an eight eight five. I'm going to give second season seven point eight. Here's the funny thing, based on all the conversation we've had, I enjoyed this season overall more than I did season one. Oh, interesting. I thought it again, like I mentioned earlier, I thought season one, although I enjoyed it, took a while to heat up and then had a a good final two episodes that I really enjoyed. This one, I felt like it had, it hit more than it missed in the earlier episodes, even if it didn't, even if it teased me more than I would have liked it. And I, I, I don't remember exactly what I gave season one either. The curse of old age. (laughs) But it, it likely would have been in the seven to seven and a half range. And this one I'd put in the seven point seven five to eight point two five in terms of I I had a lot of fun with it and I looked forward to it and I didn't feel like there was many just poor there weren't as many missteps, even in the standalone episodes that were there. Like that was part of my problem with season one. I didn't mind the the standalone apps. I just thought that some of them just weren't very well done. Interesting. I didn't have the same, didn't have the same number of misses for me in that regard. This one, this season felt less emotionally rich, but more, more action packed. And I thought that the action worked better generally overall in this season than the first season. So there you go. Mandalorian season two. What did you think? We're on Twitter to take all of your hot takes or to take the heat for all of ours, or at least for mine. I'm at Jake underscore Roberson. I am at AC Paul still. Still. 
But now it's time for the most least important thing. Welcome back to the most least important thing, the way we love to wrap up every single little show of ours. It's a segment where I say something completely ludicrous, trying to make a segue into the fact that we're just going to give you little fun or serious nuggets about whatever the heck we want. <laughs> that's, that's it. I think you should record that and just play it before every single most least important thing. I could, but then I couldn't just come up with all the ludicrous things that I like to say. <laughs> that is for me, that's part of the appeal. That is true. So, Jake, I am totally on topic for this week's most least important thing. Good. Because we're talking Disney Plus, what might be the big TV show to follow up The Mandalorian. Uh-huh, uh-huh. We've been talking about superheroes. Yep. I wanted to talk just a little bit about the upcoming show that I'm really excited about on Disney Plus. Something that we may talk about not too far down the road, and that would be WandaVision. WandaVision. WandaVision is coming to Disney Plus January 15th. By the time you listen to this, you could very well be on even even now. You could be watching it as you're listening to us. Although I wouldn't advise that because honestly, WandaVision sounds totally surreal. I don't, how much do you know about this show, Jake? It looks very surreal. And I think as we sort of uh, discovered on a previous episode, I don't know much about it. I, until this week, literally the last weekend, two or three days, I had not seen a trailer for WandaVision. I had not seen really much of anything on WandaVision for whatever reason. I wasn't trying to avoid it, but it just wasn't impacting my circles until recently. Yeah. yeah. And I wasn't going looking for it either. So there's that. But uh, I don't really know anything about it other than it's about Wanda and Vision. It's a very strange little show. I, I don't quite know what to make of it. And, and I think that that's sort of the purpose. Like how, first of all, Vision's alive. He's, and they're sort of sucked into this this sitcom world, and I'm not exactly sure why. But the interesting thing is, is that Disney Plus is really focused in on those sitcoms, and they're actually making them into like like versions of classic sitcoms from from Bewitched to The Office, and they have taken no shortcuts in terms of replicating those. It's not just like this is meant to be sort of like a 50s type of show. They're taking actual sitcoms that you might see on rerun TV, long, you know, late, late night type of stuff and and sort of recreating that with Wanda and Vision in there. And I'm going to be pretty interested in it. Now, theoretically, the whole series will actually draw toward a traditional Marvel Cinematic Universe conclusion. It's going to have a big actual superhero conclusion. But how it can get from that to where we start off with what looks like Bewitched, I'm not exactly sure. That has me more interested than the trailers did. Because honestly, I was a little confused by the trailers. And not in a good way where (laughs) I'm intrigued, confused, and more just, what is this supposed to be confused i i don't know what you're trying to promise me with this show or hook me with with this show your description helped a little bit i like the i like the idea 
of sending up classic, real classic sitcoms as you move toward, as you move through a storyline. I like that concept. I like, it sounds high concept enough for my know-it-all self. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to be interested. I'm definitely going to be watching. But to to that end, I've not been I've not been particularly intrigued by the trailers. But I did just watch recently the Loki trailer. Oh, have you watched the Loki trailer? I have not seen the Loki trailer. That is good trailer making, in my opinion, because it gives you this sense of intrigue of I don't know what the heck is going on and yet the way in my opinion it packages it all together it does so in a way that's oh this is going to be wild and this is going to be fascinating and I need to figure out what the story is that is drawing all these disparate pieces together in a way that Wanda the WandaVision trailers just seemed didn't seem to quite have that unifying thread that let you in on a little bit of, or at least gave you a, a nugget of maybe this is where it's all kind of tying together. And this is the theme, even if it's not telling you the storyline. So anyways, that wasn't my most least important thing, but you should watch the Loki trailer. <laughs> it's fantastic. It's very strange how Disney plus keeps bringing back all these characters who legitimately died in the movies. Like yeah. Loki vision. These people are, they died. They died. Isn't this just classic comic books, though? It is. It is classic comic books. It totally is. Yeah. They're just like, oh, we'll ignore everything else that happened. Mine is also MCU related, but just differently so. Mine is that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Paul the the a big <laughs> I was, and I, the way he was nodding, I was like, he's going to say something, but he didn't say anything. <laughs> Mine is that Marvel Studios president, Kevin Feige, right? That's how you say F-E-I-G-E. Feige? 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 Anyway. Feige. Feige. Yeah. One of those is right. <laughs> Kevin, Kevin, let us know. He has announced as of today, January 11th, that the next Deadpool movie will still be R-rated. Right? Big news. The Merc with the Mouth is going to stay R-rated. But will be a part of the MCU. What? Oh, I have such mixed feelings about this. Very fascinating. As uh, we talked back when Once Upon a Deadpool came out, that, you know, I was intrigued by that because I am I am a fan of the comedic style of Deadpool, but I really can't stomach as a casual viewer just how crass the R-rated so version crass. is. And so to hear that they're bringing Deadpool into the MCU, wherever I've seen Deadpool when he's, and to be honest, some of the R-rated stuff makes me laugh, but wherever I've, Deadpool just is, I'm such a fan of Deadpool's comedic stylings that to hear that he's coming to the MCU is really cool, but to hear that it's still going to be R-rated, it's still going to be inaccessible in that regard. I'm just really curious to see how they're going to merge something like that with a the MCU has been relatively fan friendly or family friendly in that regard. Yeah, and and you know from my perspective and this is from obviously just a movie perspective, I know that Deadpool has been a part of both of these 
universes, if you will, in the comics. But I always see Deadpool as more of an X-Man type of a guy, you know? Sure. I think that I it feels weird because the MCU has built such a strong, consistent universe. And granted, the, the, the chapter is closed on that. They're opening up a brand new chapter. I, I, I just don't know. I just don't know. It feels like Deadpool and Captain America in the same universe. That feels very strange to me. It gets even stranger when you start to think about the fact that Netflix's originals such as Deadpool or not Deadpool, Daredevil and Jessica Jones and Luke Cage are also a part of the MCU and built off of stuff that happened in the MCU. And that was a feat that was, you know, we did, I, was, I thought they pulled off overall pretty well to have their own standalone series, but still connect into the events from uh, the movies. So is it going to be, but it still remained pretty distant, right? We didn't get Captain America or Iron Man cameos in those. So is it going to be more akin to that? I wonder where, uh, or are they going to try for a more direct yeah. involvement in the MCU? That still remains to be seen, but it also leaves us with very tonally different, like thinking about Iron Man, yeah. Captain America interfacing with Jessica Jones and <laughs> Daredevil, and then the Merc with the mouth. Even the the humor feels like it's dissonant. You know, Thor Ragnarok was super funny, but I just don't see that that humor and Deadpool humor meshing that well you know i just i just don't quite get it but and and the other thing is to your point some of the funniest parts of deadpool honestly was them you know deadpool talking about what a cut rate superhero he was and they couldn't afford to get anybody else to do a cameo in his movies yeah <laughs> you know there were deadpool is honest to goodness really really crass and awfully funny in places and i don't know it just it just feels i like deadpool as its own thing and i really like it when they remake it into pg-13 versions of it yeah so there you go what do you think about these new developments in the mcu i can't say the word developments (laughs) (laughs) oh that's about it for us folks please Leave us a review if you want to hear me mispronounce more words or give more terrible hot takes. If you can leave us a review, that helps us get in front of more people who can be assaulted with our bad hot takes and poor pronouncement of words. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's, that's a word that <laughs> All right. not be mispronounced. Right. Yeah. That. Yep. It's uh. It's time to wrap it up. That's (laughs) it for this episode of Pop Culture with Fanboy and Know It All. I'm Jake. I am Paul. Until next time, we'll catch you on the flip side. Bye. Bye.